Two things about interviewing. Number one, interviewing is an experiential skill. The more you practice, the better you get. That's key. So even like great interviewers are not born, they're made. The second thing is interviewing, when it works really well, is a team sport or a team activity. Meaning a team of interviewers who are used to working with one another get very good collectively together. Welcome to The Get, the Marketing Talent Podcast. This is Erica Seidel, your host. We explore what it takes to get and keep the best marketing leaders in the B2B SaaS world. Today, we will talk about when CMOs become CROs. And my guest is Scott Horn, who is CRO at Prism HR. And Prism HR is a SaaS company in the HR space. Um, they focus on software and services that power um, HR issues, so payroll benefits, HR for small and medium-sized businesses. The company is about 250 people, uh, private equity-infused company. And before this, Scott was chief marketing and revenue ops officer, very interesting title there, um, for 27 AI, 24-7 AI, um, and which is a SaaS platform using AI to fuel customer acquisition and engagement. And before that, he was the chief marketer for Seagate. And before that, 17 years at Microsoft, that is a long time, Scott. You are a CRO. Yes. And you used to be a CMO. And this is unusual, right? Because so many of them have a heritage as sales leaders, and you have more of a heritage of a marketing. And So my first question is, how did you get this job? Yeah, so that's a great question. So first of all, I'd say um, there really are no two exact types of CROs. So there's a lot, like some CROs have marketing, some don't, some are sales leaders. It really depends on the company. Um, the thing that was interesting about my background is, as you said, I've done a lot of different things. Yep. Uh, you know, I've done product leadership roles in engineering. I've done planning, run you know parts of sales, done business development, which helped a lot with sales. But the big thing about it is uh, I was always a revenue-oriented CMO. And I didn't start out my career that way, but you become very attuned to it. And, you know, 24-7, the revenue ops part was I essentially built the company's infrastructure for sales. You know, our deal desk, sales operations, I had all running for me. I had the sales engineers reporting to me. I had all of our sales development reps. So I was doing a lot of it and um, picked up a lot of things. And then when I came here, I was always very, very focused on the revenue. In fact, you get really good at having a set of, well, heuristics in your head where you go, okay, our revenue is this, our average deal size is that, we need that many leads, how many leads do we get per SDR, and you start doing the math backwards, you just automatically start doing it. So I believe a CRO, like a CMO, your job is more about building the system and the culture. Mm. Uh, yes, you should be able to go in front of any customer and help a salesperson close or help a marketer do something, but you know the, the myth of take our best salesperson and they'll make a great CRO or great sales leader usually doesn't work out unless they're a great people leader too. So. Okay, so uh, talk quickly about what's what's the organization under you. Yeah, so I've got, so essentially I've got, I'll say kind of three big teams and then their parts. So I've got customer success, which you know some people call them account managers. We wanted to do more of that. So for our existing partners, which our partners are PEOs, professional employee organizations, ASOs, administrative services organizations are critical because we don't, service small business directly. We do that via partners who provide payroll services, HR advisory benefits. We we build the platform that helps them do that. So, and we have a lot of large critical partners. We have about 300 plus partners. So the CSMs, customer success, 
managers are responsible for working with those partners, helping them understand what's going on. I've got the marketing organization, and that's essentially all marketing, uh, PR, internal relations, uh, sorry, internal communications, product marketing, campaigns team, uh, all, you know, all those kinds of teams. And then I've got our sales teams as well. So anybody responsible for going out for new logo sales, et cetera. Within there, I have a revenue ops team. So that was part of the marketing team. Started out as marketing ops. It's evolved to be responsible for all revenue, op revenue operations. That's sales ops, marketing ops. We also, I have a parallel, a close partner here of mine. He runs our diversified services, which is marketplace, partnerships where you can have third party and insurance because mm -hmm. we have a growing insurance partnership business. My team supports him equally. So my RevOps team, I, I think of him as, you know, he's at you know, parity with what our team needs and we just kind of intermix the requirements. So that's kind of the team roughly overall. What is the number one question that you want to be asked to demonstrate that you're a great revenue leader? Well, I think the number one question, the one you're going to get asked whether, you're, whether or not you want to be asked is, did you make the numbers? Yep. So at the end of the day, I will say that's one thing. So as a marketing, as the CMO, I thought about, you know, it's kind of like the old joke about the pig and the chicken for breakfast. You know, the chicken is involved with the eggs. The pig is committed because they're the ham. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like for a lot of CMO. I mean, and by the way, there's a wide range of CMOs too. Yeah. Um, I'll say there are certain CMO jobs, even though I've been a CMO for, you know, 10, 15 years. Me, as an example, me being the CMO of Coca-Cola would probably be a tragedy, both because I probably wouldn't be interested in it and, probably, and absolutely there are a lot of people better qualified. Now, on the other hand, the CMO of Coca-Cola coming here would be equally bad. Mm -hmm. So, you know, environment, the type of business, type of customers. It, well, like I said, as the CMO, I was the chicken for breakfast. I'm the pig now. The thing I bring to it is like, there's a lot of things I can do to make their jobs easier and decisions that have to be made. And I think they see, at least I hope so, the feedback I get is they see me helping do that. And I think we're making a lot of progress on it. For example, one of the things we're investing a lot in here is, quite frankly, we use Salesforce. Uh, we switched to Marketo when we're happy with that. I walked in the company and we really were not using Salesforce well. And, you know, it was we wanted the salespeople to use it. We weren't making it easy for them to use it. And it wasn't their fault. They were trying to use it. And we didn't have any real in-house expertise. I went out and hired some people who were very good at it. Now we do all our pipeline calls in Salesforce, not with spreadsheets. Now we're going beyond that and we're adding additional tech to enable our salespeople. So things that, for example, call dialers, um, automated email sequences, so we're really trying to, you know, things like Zoom Info, uh, Discover.org, granting tools that help our salespeople do their jobs more easily. Because my thing is like, look, I want to free up the maximum amount of time for you to be in front of customers um, with prospects. Nobody wants to sit there doing like entering stuff in Salesforce. So let's talk about hiring. Okay. Um, so you mentioned that you explicitly train your team on interviewing. I'm a nut, about, ahead of this. I'm a nut about interviewing. Uh, this is awesome because okay. I feel like often when a company, especially a smaller company, interviews talent, um, they get a resume, you know, they're like scanning the resume on the way to the meeting room to meet <laughs> yeah, the candidate, yeah. and then they're trying to invent questions and pull them out of thin air, and, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll take the 25-year-old the and say, oh, hey, you, 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 
uh, evaluate for cultural yep. fit without even defining what that is. Yep. So very few companies kind of determine what good looks like. Two things about interviewing. Number one, interviewing is an experiential skill. The more you practice, the better you get. That's key. So even like great interviewers are not born, they're made. Second thing is interviewing when it works really well is a team sport or a team activity, meaning a team of interviewers who are used to working with one another get very good collectively together. Okay. So as a consequence, you come to it like a few conclusions that number one, we all have to be on the same page within a system of interviewing. Like what are we looking for culturally? What are we looking for that job? What's the process? How does the interview day work? How do we hand off, you know, in candidate to the next interviewer? How do we write feedback up? Um, you know, how do we do all that? So that's part of it. Second thing is, if you're going to get good experiential, you got to do it a lot. So consequently, very few people on the team actually interview. Now, I've trained the whole team because I think it's a career skill everybody should have. I mean, frankly, sadly, nobody. I was fortunate. My first manager at Microsoft was a nut about interviewing. He didn't have a, a guidebook or anything. I took, I did that myself later. But he was passionate about talent. Yeah. And I think he was absolutely right. I, I saw it myself, which is if you hire great people and invest the time in the front end, reality is great people want to do great things. My job is to get the heck out of their way. It starts with looking at what you care about culturally. It looks starts, and I've actually written it out. In fact, you know, your mistakes in hiring teach you things. So last week I wrote out kind of a little cheat sheet checklist for the whole team. I got the idea from Patrick Lancioni yep. on the end of the advantage. Uh, I loved it. So I've got a little checklist filter. I can even show it to you after where it's like, okay, as a team, we're looking for these kinds of things. Now, somebody doesn't need to demonstrate all of them. I got little check boxes on there. But if they violate one of these, it's a problem. All my hiring mistakes are related to two factors. The candidate does not have self-awareness and or, and or the candidate has an inability or lack of desire to learn. You know, I rarely have I made mistakes for I thought I hired the person with this subject matter expertise and they didn't have it. I have like probably 20 pages of questions over, built over the years by type of job. So I have, I have questions for executive administrative assistants. I have questions for CROs. I have questions for CFO. I have questions for uh, developers. Uh, marketers, of course, salespeople, of course. Um, in fact, since we're talking about CROs here, uh, the Ben Horowitz book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, mm -hmm. the appendix he has on hiring a CRO, great read. Okay. Highly recommended. Um, there you go. Practical tip. All right. If you listen this far. So how do you tell if somebody has self-awareness and wants to learn? So the interesting thing is very few interviewers, probably less than 1% in my experience, are sophisticated enough interviewers. I mean that in a positive way, that they're thinking about the question and they're thinking about what's behind the question. Mm -hmm. It really takes, it's really tough because you're so locked in as a candidate, you're locked into. So, you know, I'll typically ask things like, you know, what would so-and-so say about you? And you can see the person, the candidate, almost visualizing that person. So I look for that, um, for learning, I look, do they ask questions? Do they, uh, I'll ask specific questions. What was the biggest failure you've had? What would you learn from it? What would you do differently? If you could take a time machine back and do it again. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you look for. Um, you know, some of it you see in the resume. Is there a track record of success that they stick in multiple places, you know, multiple points of time? You know, I have some biases. We all have our biases on resumes. I'm not a fan of people who jump around a lot. 
you know, if you've got a lot of one year or less stops, I'm probably not going to talk to you. I'm, and I shouldn't say this, I'm not a fan of um, people who are applying for job, like a job here, but they've been consultants the last three years if living somewhere else. Because my theory is, well, if you loved being a consultant, why do you want to come here? And if you didn't love being a consultant, why just stay being a consultant for three years? Probably because there was nothing that came together. So I do look at those That is things. such a bias that people it, have. I, yeah. it, it is. Oh, it it totally God. is. When I do uh, leadership interviews for candidates uh, where they're managing a team, it's actually sometimes two interviews. I'll do one for functional knowledge, technical knowledge, strategic thinking, and then I'll do a separate part where I talk all about management. You know, I want to understand how they hire. I want to understand what their management rhythm is. I want to understand. I mean, I've actually had candidates. It sounds horrible. Don't. But you, I had somebody as an interview for a management role who's claimed they were a manager, said they'd never had to uh, terminate anyone. I'm like, really? I mean, that's, I mean, to me, not that we, I don't, nobody should ever revel in that. You're a psychopath if you do. But if you've been a manager for a while and you haven't had to do that, something very unusual, because this was like the one in a hundred exception. So I thought that was, really, we never, so to me that was interesting because, it's like, okay, then you start, how, how high is your performance bar? Mm. You know, are you setting the standards for your team effectively, or is it just, you know, you're kind of the, hey, I'm everybody's buddy kind of manager. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. Refreshing. So, I sound like an ogre in this thing. Yeah, no, People no, no, are like, no. oh, my God, it's a till of the hun. Yeah. <laughs> so um, can you talk about hiring SDR, BDR teams sure. in particular? Because it's something that many marketing leaders yeah, yeah. are starting to do more and more. Yep. And if you've been used to hiring marketing leaders, but now you have to hire these, you know, that this yeah, um, yeah. You know, hybrid marketing sales is different. So first of all, say to me, and you and I talked about this when we yep. were talking, I think the future is SDRs will live in marketing. I see it more and more. I think they should be there. Mm -hmm. The SDR game is not your traditional. It's a different. It's a critical skill set. It's a very different skill set than your, uh, you know, your account executive rep. So your SDR, you know, if you think about what SDR does, and some people call them business development reps, BDRs. Some people call them account development reps. But essentially, these are your appointment setters, qualifiers. So you're talking about somebody who's typically early in career. You know, they're Called four to six years out of college, maybe they aspire to do marketing someday, maybe they want to be in a sales role, and their job is, if you think about the job, because to answer your question, when I look for, I always start with what's the job and work back. So the job of an ADR, or sorry, an SDR here is, you have a quota for delivering marketing qualified, we call them prospects, which meets a defined criteria, it's been written down, needs to meet this qualification criteria, needs to be matched with a partner, and you have a monthly quota for that. So there's a lot of puzzle solving. Um, you've got people, they need amazing communication skills. You know, a lot of your day as an SDR is you're dialing, you're trying to get people on the phone, you're writing your own emails. They've got to be resilient, comfort with technology. There's a lot of tech. You know, I mean, just in our stack, we're using Salesforce, we're using Outreach IO now, we're using Zoom Info. Uh, we're looking at adding other tech. We use LinkedIn Sales Navigate. So there's a whole bunch of tech. So, you know, in fact, one of the things I suggest people look for is if you're looking at a candidate, one of the first things I do is I go to LinkedIn. And generally speaking, somebody who has a lousy LinkedIn profile, not going to be a good fit for us. Why so, that? Because so modern selling and modern marketing involves tech and social. I do think there's a, absolutely a place for old school selling techniques. And I think a lot, like, for example, as an aside, we're doing physical mailers again. In fact, there's 
I'm holding up for those of you on, who can't see in my office. You know, we have a little, we sent this out to our construction uh, trades people, oh, yeah? little Leatherman physical mailer. Oh, Leatherman, yeah. This is one of my very creative marketing people. Okay. Because, you know, you get the lumpy email in your mailbox. Um, yep. You get you get tons of emails. You don't get many mails, yep. so you get the lumpy mail in your box. You're like, what is that thing? So old school's kind of new school. Old school's back again. But so, it's funny when you say that LinkedIn. I, I feel like people often feel like their their resume is the top of the funnel. People always contact me. Oh, how's my resume? Check it out. Oh yeah. No, no, no. It's the LinkedIn profile that's the top of the funnel. It's actually both. You know, well, you know, for, for me and my students, I feel like CEOs will initially look at LinkedIn. Oh, like, totally, oh, I do. Who do I know in common with this person? <laughs> and, and and the way you talk about yourself on LinkedIn is different than in fact, day. it's pretty funny. I shouldn't give this away. My oh. old CFO uh, from 24-7 is a dear friend. She's now the CFO of OpenTax, which is public company. She's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. The night before the interview or the day before, she would send an invite to the candidate the day before to see if they actually caught it and responded. Oh, to see how... How responsive they were. Let's talk a little bit about CEO and CMO alignment. Yep. You talked about um, having a good alignment here. But yeah. what, what is your advice to oh. a CEO on how that person should align with their CMO? So, yeah, so I actually have a blog post waiting to go on this one of these days. I'll probably publish it one of these days. I actually once did an internal blog at Seagate, The Joy and Tragedy of Marketing. I was like, the joy is everybody's interested in it. The tragedy is anybody who's ever bought anything or watched a TV ad thinks that's marketing. So um, CEOs, I found, fall into that trap, which is, you know, and it's funny because there's, a, as you know, because you're recruiting for them, there's a lot of science, a lot of thought, a lot of data analysis, a lot of tech. Like I tell people these days, Marketing is three things. It's people, data, and tech. So I'd say for CEOs, first of all, what do you want? Um, I've, I've gone into situations and CEOs, and I've advised a bunch of CFO, CEOs. I have CEOs. They're like, well, we need a brand. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, we need a brand. I'm like, no, really, what do you want? And it turns out what they really want is revenue. Second thing is, so do you care about revenue? Do you care about brand? You know, a second thing is, does the marketing leader have a good, great sales partner? I say this all the time. A, I absolutely believe this. A great sales team can power through a mediocre marketing team. The reverse is not true. Mm. You can sit there and go, we're a great marketing team. If your sales team is not selling, it does, nobody cares. I run other things like the classic one. I've had this one, you know, $10 million company. I was talking to a great company. We want to build a category. We want Gartner to build a magic quadrant for us. That was the conversation with the CEO. I said, okay, I said, first of all, I said, that's not going to happen. You know, I said, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. So I said, number one, Gartner is an economic entity like the rest of us. And the reason they create magic quadrants, which I know a lot of people at Gartner from past lives, I said, the reason they create magic quadrants is because a lot of people will pay to be in them and pay to buy them. I said, so if you are a $10 million company and the only player in your quadrant, they're not, they don't care. You know, the other thing is also I negotiate a few things up front. I'm like, Candidly, I get to pick my team. Um, I also walk in, you know, what I, I I was fortunate. I did my homework in every case. So I did my homework. Last three companies, uh, what am I getting into? What does the team look like? What have you told me you care about CEO? And then I'll say, look, I'm looking at what's going on here. You're missing this and this and this. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, when I came to Prism HR, we had probably a nine-person marketing team. Now it's probably, about, probably double that. Um, it's, and 
you know, we, we didn't have a PR function. We did not have a marketing ops function. We didn't have a web person. You know, now we have all those. Well, you know, you're grimacing, but we had, you know, we weren't really doing PR. Uh, we had one very talented product marketer who happens to be a leader. He was in the evening hours being the part-time marketing ops, part-time web guy. And of course, there's a bunch of, I mean, he, and he was very good, but of course, you know, if you got two hours versus 10 hours, you're gonna get a lot. So I walked in and, you know, I say, here's what I think I'm gonna need. Because the last thing you wanna do is take a job where the CEO's thinking this, and you're saying, I need this, and the CEO goes, no. You know, so if you get answers like, I'll tell you later, or we'll see, etc. You know, those are not good answers. And you know, I'd say as for CMO candidates, you know, both parties should be interviewing the other one. Um, cultural fit matters. In fact, the thing that attracted me to this place, at the end of the day, I mean, was three things. I thought the mission was great. You know, you said at the beginning, our mission through our partners is to help America's small business. You know, we have we help over two million people get paid every month and probably several million more live happy lives because of that, that's important. I thought the place was really interesting. I thought, you know, when I looked at my skill set experience, I thought some of the things the CEO is telling me he wants to do, I think I can help with that. And the third thing was the people. I, I, you know, I really like the people, I still do the culture, respectful people like working together, they care about, so those things, so if you're, you know, and I'd say, I have the benefit of having done a few times, but if you're going for your first CMO job and you're like, man, the culture doesn't feel right, or hey, the CEO's telling me, you know. Um, in fact, I'll tell, you one, I'll tell you one crazy story in a second, which is absolutely true. But the CEO's tell me they want, you know, they want to go to the moon and they're going to give me a Yugo to get there, you know, or bicycle to get there. You should be careful. I, I had one company. I, I walked out and told the recruiter I'll never talk to them again. This was this was when I was uh, 2011. They brought me down to Silicon Valley, a company that shall, shall remain nameless, um, still bopping around Silicon Valley. Um, I walked in. CEO shows up 45 minutes late for my interview. He's at lunch with his team. He brings the whole team into a room. I mean, literally 15 of them. Says to me, you see that guy over there? He points to the guy down there. He's doing the work of 20 people with three people. He goes, you know what I'm gonna do? He goes, I got all kinds of people want this job here. He said, I wanna be on Fortune Magazine's cover all the time. I want the PR of Apple and Google. And he literally says, I'm gonna give you 5,000 bucks to do that. <laughs> I was very polite, sat there. I'm you know, inside, I'm sitting there going, woo, you know, yeah. and alarm's going Got Finished the interview, said thank you. He kept telling me how all these people want. Finished the interview, walked out, literally called the interviewer, walking out of the steps of the building and said, no way, life's too short, never doing that again. So. Right, wow. Um, that's that's great. I think that it's really key to to align with the CEO and and you know we all want to be scrappy, but yeah. we don't want to sign up for well, you know. That's the big the, the big purpose of your interview day is really to determine if what they want aligns with the resource they want to give. In fact, that's the question I usually ask with CEOs, whether it's or anything else. I'm like, look, I'm here to sit with you, understand what you need, and understand whether the resources align with that. So you got to be really careful because otherwise, you know. It's a short tenure. Right. So. Right. Exactly. Great. Well, we are out of time. Okay. Thank you so you much for uh, for joining me, everybody. This is Scott Horn, a CRO at Prism HR. So thank you. Thank you. Scott. Thanks for joining us today for The Get. Join us next time with another guest. Till then, follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, or check us out on LinkedIn and Twitter so you don't miss a thing.